The key to spiritual growth is being in two places at the same time. How do you do that? Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversations for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Here's our host, Menachem Poznanski. Consciously, welcome back. Whew, great to be here. Welcome to the podcast. If you're new or a procrastinator, do us a favor, give us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or all those good places. If you want to know more about what we think, check out our social media pages, uh, The Light Revealed, on Instagram and on Facebook. And if you want to reach us, you can do that on Instagram at The Light Revealed or at Menachem Puzz or on an email, consciouslythepodcast at gmail.com. Finally, if you're wondering, how could I know more about the 12 steps of recovery if I'm Jewish, you can check out our book, Stepping Out of the Abyss, A Jewish Guide to the 12 Steps. And if you're wondering how you might be able to build a meaningful connection with your creator, you might want to check out Consciously, Six Steps Living Vibrantly with Our Creator, because you can. Okay, so here we go. So the question is, can I be in two places at one time? There's a great story that I heard recently from Rav Moshe Weinberger about somebody at Tzaddik of some sort that went to visit the Baal Shem to check out what was going on in Mezhabush. And he went late at night after you know the base measures had cleared out and things were getting quiet. He wanted to see what was the avoda, what was the spiritual practice of the Baal Shem Tov late at night, like around Chatzos, around the middle of the night, when Jews classically say Tikkun Chatzos. So he went and looked inside, and he saw there the Baal Shem Tov was sitting at a table with his wife, consoling a woman who was very distressed. So he left, he went back to the base manager, she said, okay, this Baal Shem Tov guy, he seems like a nice guy, but he must not be very serious. He's not in the base manager's learning. And he walked into the base medrash, and lo and behold, there was the Baal Shem Tov saying to Kachatzos in the base medrash. How did he get there so fast? So he ran back home, and he looked inside the house, and the Baal Shem Tov was sitting there with his wife and a woman, consoling them. And then he ran back to the base medrash, and lo and behold, there was the Baal Shem Tov. So the man was obviously very bewildered. How is it possible? What's going on here? So the next day, he approached the Baal Shem Tov, and he asked him, how is it that I looked inside of your house, and you were there consoling this woman. And when I was in the base medrash, I found you there as well. So the Baal Shem Tov said, oh, it's easy. That's because Tikkun Chatzos, as the, for those who know, related is related to the spiritual ideas that are connected to the personage of Rachel and Leah, our two mothers. And the spiritual symbolism of each relates to a different aspect of a person. Rachel corresponds to one aspect. Leah corresponds to the other aspect. So he says, at home, I was with Leah. And in the base medrash, I was with Rachel. You see, because when you're tapped into other people's suffering and other, other people, then you can be in two places at one time. That's a very odd thing. Now, obviously, we could take that story literally, and I believe it could be true, literally, but you don't have to. But the question that emerges is like, what's the, what's the message behind that? Then I heard a different story I saw in Lakutu Maran. Rabbi Nachman brings down a story about the Magad of Mizrich, that the Magad's followers, his students, were being persecuted by a certain individual of prominence and fame. 
That's a great story, actually. Really great messages in the story. And they went to their Rebbe, the Magad, and they said, what should we do about it? So the Magad said, you have to try to encourage him to come, try to see if you can convert him to come to him, that he should come see me, you should see what we're doing here. And in order to do that, you should daven to God, you should pray to God that he should open up his heart, that he should be willing to come. So they, they prayed. Rabbi Nachman says they prayed for a long time, and they were successful. And the man came to Mizrich, and he saw what was going on, and he became converted. He became illuminated to see that this path of Hasidus was good for the world, and he became a Hasid himself. Shortly afterward, his fortunes uh, turned, and he lost all of his money, and he lost his fame, and he became very downtrodden. And the Hasidim came back to the to the Magad of Mizrich and said, is this what we're doing to people? What are we doing? We're, we're benefiting them by illuminating, illuminating them to a new spiritual path, but then, then they lose everything? How is that fair? And the Magad said, well, it says in the Gemara, he said, and this is related to something we read in, in, the, in the last few weeks in the Torah portions, that in the Kodesh, in the, in the base of Migdash, in the Holies, in the Holy, there's the Holy of Holies, and then there's the Holy, in the Holy there was a menorah, and there was a shulchan. The menorah is the candelabra. And the shulchan is the table where the lechem apanim, the, the, the weekly bread, would be placed. And the lechem apanim, the shulchan, refers to sustenance, material sustenance. And the menorah refers to spiritual illumination. And the Gemara says when a person is seeking sustenance, they should pray toward the northeast where the shulchan was. And if they're seeking spiritual illumination, they should, seek, they should pray towards the southeast. So the Magad said, the problem is a person can't be in two places at the same time. He can either be focused on generating material abundance, or he can be focused on spiritual illumination. He can't have both at the same time. But then, however, there were individuals, there is an aspect, there is a place where a person can exist above space and time. And this occurs when they're dedicating their lives to God, because God is above space and time. So if you are just a channel, if you are only a messenger, for God, then you also have the ability to transcend time and space. And this is how Moshe Rabbeinu and Rabbeinu HaKodesh, right, Rebbe, who was the one who authored the Mishnah, right, were able to be fabulously wealthy. And also, they were tremendous scholars, very spiritual people, right? But it's only from a place of humility and self-sacrifice and surrender that a person can have both. So it was great stories, very, very sweet. The question is, what can we learn from it? And how does that relate to our spiritual practices in life? So there are many places where, in life, on a spiritual journey, we come to a place where we feel like we can't be doing two things at the same time. Like, it seems very difficult to build our self-esteem and focus on humility at the same time because they seem to be in opposition with one another. Or, for example, let's say we're trying to learn how to stand up for ourselves. It seems like it's very difficult to both stand up for myself and also practice tolerance. Because either I'm being tolerant, I'm focusing on being tolerant, which means I'm going to be stepped on sometimes, or I'm focusing on strengthening myself, and sometimes I overstep, I overshoot the mark, and I end up less tolerant or more frustrated, or in the same frame, to be tolerant versus working on my anger, right? Those are, they, they seem to be two opposing things. And one of the really interesting things that I think those stories reflect is perhaps a methodology by which perhaps we can work on two things at the same time that are seemingly in opposition. So in order to understand this, illuminate this perhaps a little more practically, I want to go back to a theme that we've been talking about for a while on the podcast we haven't returned to for a couple months, which is the 12 steps of recovery. 
Because there's an interesting thing that occurs in the 12 steps. Now, for those who are familiar with the 12-step process, there's 12 steps, which are kind of the methodology by which somebody seeking to overcome or live free from addiction works on themselves, right? There's 12 steps. It's a process. We went through all those steps. I encourage you to look back at those episodes. I think they're they're rather good. Um, and the 12th step, as we discussed uh, in December, what is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, which had to carry this message to other alcoholics or other addicts or other people suffering, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So the 12th step is really about gaining some measure of confidence in ourselves and in our message and seeing that other people need our message. Now, that's a very nice idea. It's a very novel idea. But you could definitely imagine that that might feed a little bit of arrogance. Like, who says anyone needs my information, particularly considering the fact that I'm coming from a place of brokenness. Now, there's, an, there's, there's another frame here, which is the traditions. Now, I haven't really talked about the traditions. I thought about it. Maybe at some point I'll do a series on the 12 traditions. But basically, for those who are not familiar, the traditions, the 12 traditions are kind of like the bylaws by which Alcoholics Anonymous and the other 12-step programs operate. Even though and as part of the traditions, each individual meeting is autonomous. And this is somebody, something that many people from outside the program don't necessarily understand. Um, that each meeting itself is its own thing. There's no one in charge of AA overall. There's a, or NA, right? Or any of the other 12-step programs. There's, there tends to be a, a world services division, meaning there's like a, an AA world services. It's actually in Manhattan. And they, they do things. Mostly they publish uh, pamphlets and different books, um, and they put together a, a, a yearly conference. There's things that it does, but individual AA meetings in any given community are autonomous. They're allowed to do whatever they want. However, as long as they meet a specific standard, which is the two alcoholics meeting with a desire to stay sober or two, two addicts meeting with a desire to stay clean. However, the combined experience of those programs came to the conclusion that the most effective way or the only effective way to be able for these individual autonomous groups to be able to function, not only to function individually, but also to function as a greater whole, was to institute or at least express these 12 traditions that no one has to follow, but meetings, especially ones that, that do a good job, tend to follow these traditions, right? So there's 12 traditions, and each tradition reflects a spiritual principle by which wacky and challenging individuals, people, can get together and live together, so to speak, or grow together harmoniously. And the 12th tradition is, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. So basically, the, the frame is that anonymity, or some measure of what we associate as humility, um, is the foundation of all the principles by which we operate. And we want to place principles before personalities, which means individuals don't matter. The pr only principles matter. No one has, there's no social hierarchy. There's not meant to be, or there's an aspiration to not have social hierarchy within the community of recovery. And that individuals are not what matters. What matters most is the practice of spiritual principles together as a group. And the way in which Bill Wilson, who's the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he authored both the steps and the traditions, the way he frames it is that the spiritual substance, this is from a book called The Twelve and Twelve, the spiritual substance of anonymity is sacrifice, because AA's 12 traditions repeatedly ask us to give up personal desires for the common good. We realize that the sacrificial spirit, well symbolized by anonymity, is the foundation of them all. 
which means the concept of anonymity is giving up of oneself to say, I am not important. What's most important is the movement, is the good that I'm trying to manifest, that me, not that I'm not as an individual valuable, that's not what it means at all, but rather, this is not a communistic uh, approach, but rather a sense that me sacrificing for the good of the whole is ultimately a good thing. So what we have now are two seemingly opposing energies operating at the same time, meaning as somebody engages a 12-step program and works through the first 12 steps, the steps are encouraging them to own their message and to go out and spread it. And the traditions at the end, after they've studied perhaps for a year or two, the traditions and are trying to practice this way of life are telling them, no, stop, you're supposed to be anonymous. You're you're just a bozo, another bozo on the bus. And it seems like those two things, Lahavdil, to make a separation between what we were talking about before, are asking us to be in two places at the same time. And the question becomes, how can we do both simultaneously? How can we both reveal our light and live in the security and serenity that anonymity offers? So to really answer this and to kind of hopefully get back to our original point, I want to just post something that I haven't done before, but a piece of literature or two excerpts of literature from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. One starts on page 62, and it says, this is the how and why of it. It's talking about how a person can come to a place in step three of turning their will and life over to God. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer, being all-powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs, and more and more you became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. By the way, fear for me in that context, as I'll do later, I want to replace with insecurity, but we were reborn. So that's on page, that starts on page 62 in the big book. And then later on in the same sequence, it says something else very powerful that's important for this topic. It says, this is talking about a how a person can practice in the fourth step in the way that it's laid out in the big book, a fear inventory to try to overcome their fears because fear and resentment and shame are kind of the key components that the Alcoholics Anonymous in the big book identifies as being a barrier to a successful recovery. It says, perhaps there is a better way we think so, for we are now on a basis, on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate 
This is the line. We let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear or insecurity and direct our attention to what he would have us be. Direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once we commence to outgrow fear or insecurity. So what, what the passage makes clear is that the key component in this frame, the key ability for us to overcome ourselves, to quit playing God, to stop trying to be in two places at one time, as was reflected in the story of the Magid and the Balshemtiv, is to become, to allow ourselves to be a channel. Because you see, when you're a channel for a higher cause, it becomes less and less about you and more and more about the cause and mission you have been invited and called to. As we've discussed before on the podcast, this is the great insight that Viktor Frankl had when he was in the camps, in Man's Search for Meaning, when he was in the camps, and he was wondering, how is it that someone can face this level of uh, tragedy with resilience and retain their humanity, whether they live or die? How can they retain their humanity? And what he what occurred to him, what he observed in other people, was a semblance of missionhood and connectedness, a purposefulness about their suffering. When we make the effort, to go back to that reading from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, to be the son, to be the actor, to be the agent, and to allow God, for example, to be the principle, or a spiritual principles, or a guide, right, or spiritual, or meaningfulness, or an actual mission to being part of a team, right? We can allow someone else to be the director of the show. We can allow somebody else to be the father, the provider, the director. That opens the door for us to be able to remove the ego that's going to stand in our way and stop us from being in two places at the same time. In this frame, it's going to allow us to have the courage to share our message but at the same time, allow us to retain the sacrifice of anonymity, of just being another guy, another bozo on the bus. So when the Magid says to his students, well, you could be like Moshe Rabbeinu or Rebbe, who were, who's, who were the paramount examples of humility, and therefore they could have both wealth and spiritual abundance at the same time. And that seems very far from us. In fact, it's not far at all, because the way in which we can practice ego reduction, and that's what's being revealed in, that, in those lines, in, in the big book, which is significant because it illuminates, I think, what the story of the Magid was trying to put forward and what the story of the Baal Shem Tov was trying to put forward, all these great tzaddikim that are, that are beyond our context and understanding, but to bring it down into a very worldly place because it not only works for a tzaddik, but it even more so works for a drunk who's just trying to get clean and sober, that when you can put you aside and see and own the fact that you have tremendous strength that's there for a purposeful reason, it gives you the ability to transcend the normal constrictions of life, the normal constrictions of ego, ego conflict. It reveals that the thing that blocks us from both sharing our light and retaining our humility is our very, very shattered and fractured ego, which was shattered oftentimes by some really distressing things that happened in our childhood. And one of the messages that's being given over here, I think, is that oftentimes we come to the table in whatever frame we're coming to the table with all of our, our shattered self, with all of the negative things that people said to us or all of our insecurities of an awareness of our own failures. And we do all these things to try to tape together our shattered self, 
so we can at least try to show up the best we can. But that means that we're coming from a place of limitation. We're coming from a shattered self that happens to be taped together or glued together. But what those stories of those great tzaddikim are revealing, and what this passage, I think, from the 12-step program of recovery is, is revealing, is that the way to, in which to transcend that, the way to stop being a taped-together shattered person and instead be a whole person that both can be a bozo on the bus and also be a person that shares their light is dedicating oneself to a sense of missionhood, of realizing what they have been called to, of owning their shlichus. And we can really connect to this by kind of thinking in the frames that we heard in the passage we read earlier. Like to think about it, like what would it be like to be the actor and not the director of the movie that is my life? What would it like to be the son in the scenario of God being the father? What would it like to be an agent of a principle who headed a movement we truly believed in? To really reflect upon that and feel the resistance we have to that, like the letting go. And then to breathe in and accept this new employer we have, to welcome the support, help, and direction that he or it is sending us. To reflect back a year ago to the person that you were, or even a month ago, and think, how much more light do I have in my life now? How much more do I know about life that I wish some I would have known a year ago? And surely there are others that don't know that. How much more capable am I of giving someone a hug and telling them that they're loved more than I was a year ago? How much light do you have the privilege to share? And then you could also take a deep breath and think about the spiritual foundations that you have gained and learned over the last year or five years, if you want to even go further. Like what spiritual direction, what spiritual principles do I have that I didn't have five years ago? Is it kindness, compassion, diligence, service, serenity, happiness, truth? Fill in the blank. What is it that you have that you didn't have previously? And realize that those things, that light, is both something for which to be proud and grateful for, that you have it, but also things which call you into service. To be humbled by the responsibility that growth is. And everybody has something to give someone, and usually way more than that. Now, this really reflects the theme of the days that are ahead. We entered Adar, and that means we're thinking about, well, Adar Bez is here, we're thinking about Purim that's coming up. And aside from the Adaloyada themes that are very powerful, the masks that we're taking on or taking off, there's a lot of themes. But one of the really most powerful themes you see from the narrative of Megillus Esther is two people, Mordechai and Esther, who were thrust into positions of authority and prominence, who didn't want them, and yet owned the opportunities that they had from a place of tremendous humility and self-sacrifice, and in doing so, were able to be effective players in the narrative that God was playing out. And that's the whole theme of Purim. More than any other narrative in the Torah, Purim reflects the idea that God works in mysterious ways, that God is working from behind the scenes. The, the miracles of Purim are not revealed miracles, they're hidden miracles. God is not mentioned in, in the Purim story. The main characters are wicked people and a few righteous people, particularly Mordechai and Esther. 
And because they showed up with self-sacrifice, they became vehicles of this divine narrative. God worked through them to do for the Jewish people what they could not do for themselves. And ultimately that manifested in the Jewish people accepting the Torah, receiving the spiritual light of Torah in a way that was even exceeded Harsinai. They drew a light out into the world that has helped sustain us through the darkness of exile. That even though we can't see God clearly, we can have faith that God is working behind the scenes. He's speaking to us through other people. He's working for us through the details and realities of our life. And we can begin to face all of our lives from a place of spirituality and faith and trust. And that only becomes possible because they accepted their mission. So Purim, more than anything else, maybe that's why we have to go to Adaliyada before we can launch into that, to forget everything we thought we know about life for an entirely new and fresh experience of the universe, to ask ourselves on Purim, what is the universe calling us to? What is God calling us to as we launch out into the rest of our year, as we go toward the beginning of a new holiday season, which begins with Pesach? So the answer to our original question was, how can I work on two opposing things at the same time? Does it mean that they're not actually opposing? Nope. You can work on two things at the same time that are absolutely opposing as soon as you realize that it's not about you and that you are a channel for a great good that God wants to share with the world. That you are an expression of God saying to the world, I refuse for existence to continue without my kid. To take a deep breath and lean in to both the calling and the love. Have a great day. Consciously is brought to you by The Light Reveal, a social media publisher bringing messages of Jewish spirituality and recovery whoever is looking for Consciously is made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tapora Bas Ravara. Our producer is Morty Schwartz. Our audio engineer is Alps, and our artwork is by Tani Puss. Our social media team is led by Tegil and Asanian with help from Zoe Posnansky. The assistant to the regional co-host is Shmaya Hanukman, and our music is by Eitan Katz featuring Z. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We love connecting with you, so please feel free to email us at consciouslythepodcast@gmail.com. Or private message us on Instagram or Facebook at The Light Review.